0: If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, June sixteenth, twenty 2022 edition of the Boulder Weekly. Today we'll be reading the following articles, A Second Chance for Deerfield by Lavinia Kalwani so Much Loneliness, So Close to Home, by Bart Shanman On the Range of the Gig Economy, by Michael J. Casey. A Taste of Time, by John Lendorf. The Bitter Truth, by Matt Mainpaw. Thailand's Green Gold Rush, by Will Brenza. Taste of the Week, a Manly Breakfast Pie, by John Lendorf. Good for a Laugh, by Matt Mainpaw. A Second Chance for Deerfield Colorado's historical black homestead is on the verge of dissolution, but could be saved at the final hour by the National Park System. By Lavina Kalwani Over two decades in the early 20th century, Deerfield, Colorado went from being one of the most successful black homestead sites in American history to a shattered dream and deserted settlement. Now, the ghost town might be getting a second chance at life. The 1910 homestead site, located 80 miles northeast of Boulder in Weld County, went through many highs and lows in its short history. After years of soaring praise in black newspapers across America, weather changes in the area led to crop failure and the homestead's eventual abandonment. After decades of research and calls for preservation, starting in the 1980s, new and significant progress is happening to restore the one of a kind Colorado site and raise awareness about its history. Efforts that were commended at the 2022 Dana Crawford and State Honor Awards ceremony on June 9th, hosted by Colorado Preservation Incorporated, CPI, a nonprofit that promotes awareness, education, and technical services to threatened sites, such as Deerfield. The story of Deerfield is a story of perseverance, of how the black community navigated a difficult time in American history with World War I on the horizon and the KKK on the rise, and of how Coloradans today refuse to allow history to be erased. Despite Deerfield's tragic end, it serves as an important source of black history and pride. Dr. George June, professor of Africana Studies at the University of Northern Colorado, UNC, and a leader in Deerfield's preservation movement says, Many people, no matter if they're black, white, Latino, Asian American, whatever, have no idea that black people built their own towns, their own communities, and that many of them were successful. Black people were determined, in spite of everything, to own their own farms, to own their own houses, to take care of themselves, to have their own governments in their communities, their own churches, and so forth, and to do for themselves. The National Park Service Survey. In a letter dated May 11, 2022, the Department of the Interior, DOI, which houses the National Park Service, NPS, agreed to conduct a reconnaissance survey to determine whether the Deerfield Homestead site merits further consideration as a potential unit of NPS. The letter did not include a date or timeline for the study, but stated it likely would not begin until 2023. Reconnaissance surveys evaluate whether a site fits four criteria for national significance, as outlined by NPS. It must be an outstanding example of a particular type of resource, possess exceptional value or quality in illustrating or interpreting the natural or cultural themes of our nation's heritage, offer superlative opportunities for recreation for public use and enjoyment, or for scientific study, and retain a high degree of integrity as a true, accurate, and relatively unspoiled example of the resource. The survey request comes as part of Reps Ken Buck, Republican, CD4, and John Neguse, Democrat, CD2, bipartisan efforts to preserve Deerfield through legislative action. HB 6438, the Deerfield Study Act, is currently still in the House. First introduced by the two lawmakers in January 2022, the bill was designed to preserve Deerfield as a testament to the black community in Colorado and across the country, Neguse said. The DOI letter indicates that even though HB 6438 has not yet been implemented legislatively, NPS is taking steps outlined in the bill to preserve the town. If established as a national historic site, Deerfield would gain, among other benefits, greater awareness and additional avenues for funding. A few short years ago, Deerfield was nearly erased from the map completely. In 2019, manufactured housing company Clayton Homes was set to construct modular homes on Deerfield. Clayton eventually responded to public pressure by agreeing to a land swap with the Black American West Museum, BAWM, which now owns the homestead site. But without formal safeguards in place, Deerfield remains susceptible to further development or other forms of destruction, making the survey a key setup up in protecting a cultural cornerstone of Black American history. Preservation underway. Deerfield is one of only two African American historical town sites in the country that have standing structures remaining said Andrew Feinstein, President of UNC at the 8th Annual Deerfield Conference on May 21st. The once-bustling town has only three buildings left, the Deerfield filling station, a diner, and the home of the town's founder, O.T. Jackson. These three structures, in addition to a fallen lunchroom and a blacksmith shop, have been the focus of recent preservation efforts. The urgency of preservation is high, as Dr. Robert Brunswick, Professor Emeritus of Anthropology at UNC and a leader in Deerfield Research and Preservation notes. These are deteriorating buildings that are over a century old. The past several decades have chipped away at Deerfield's remaining structures. For example, the town grocery store fell in the late 1990s, so the pressure to save what's left from a similar fate is high. In late 2021, the standing buildings were secured through protective chain link fencing, heavy duty doors, and thick polycarbonate window coverings. Termed mothballing, these measures address the ongoing threat of vandalism at Deerfield. People would come in, break through the windows and the doors, explains June. We find empty beer bottles, whiskey bottles. People urinate inside, defecate inside, put graffiti inside. In April and May 2022, the site underwent weeks of hazmat testing and abatement that resulted in the removal of lead-based paint and asbestos. As of late May, the process was nearly complete, marking the first step of an existing UNC preservation project funded by a half-million-dollar NPS grant awarded in September 2021. We started a little later than we would have hoped, Brunswick says, due to the inability to work on the site during winter. The next steps. Now and in the coming months, the NPS grant will support preservation efforts focused on building stabilization and exterior restoration to return the structures to their historic appearance. To start, this will include an architectural study of the walls and buildings to plan and design areas of work. It will be followed by the actual restoration of roofs, siding, and foundation. The goal, Brunswick says, is for the exterior of the filling station and O.T. Jackson House to look more or less like what they looked like in, say, 1920. Kim Grant, the Endangered Places Program Director for CPI, anticipates this process will take about two years. He also says a separate grant through the Colorado State Historical Fund was allocated in June 2022, which will provide more than $49,000 in funding for the architectural design and restoration of the building's interiors. In 2010, BAWM began hosting Deerfield Days, which spurred the interest and recognition Deerfield receives today. For its key role in preservation efforts, BAWM received CPI's Dana Crawford State Honor Award on June 9th, which honors preservation efforts for Colorado's historically significant sites and working landscapes. CPI highlighted Deerfield as one of those important sites that helps to tell the story of Western migration of Black Americans, says Grant. It's a remarkable story. Deerfield's Story Deerfield was known in the mid-1910s through the early 1920s for its agricultural success. Strawberries, turnips, wheat, and many other crops were not only common, but often yielded unusually large harvests. The town celebrated its prosperity through harvest festivals where even the governors would come out. That's how much of a well-known place Deerfield was, June says. It was also one of the few places where African Americans had their own homes, their own farms, June says, where a self-sufficient community was created, a reality not many in a deeply segregated America could achieve. Five archaeological field seasons have been conducted at Deerfield over the last 10 years, spearheaded by Brunswick. A sixth began this June. Items recovered so far include glass beads, shotgun shells, a rubber shoe sole, and a 1920s car speedometer. What we're finding out there is not a lot of things that are really earth-shaking, but add little pieces to the puzzle, June says. The objects paint a picture of a middle-class community with some of the highest quality materials coming from the home of founder O.T. Jackson. A racially progressive town. Deerfield was exceptional not only for its farming, but for its level of racial integration. The town's school taught both white and black children, decades ahead of Brown v. Board of Education. Black farmers, one of whom owned the first wheat thrashers in the area, would lend their equipment to white neighbors and vice versa. By 1915, you got the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, June explains, and Denver had one of the biggest claverns of Klan members in the United States. But out there on the farmland, the black and white farmers got along together. Additionally, black women and men in the area sought work at white houses and farms. The need to rely on each other in the harsh conditions of Colorado homesteading helped cultivate an environment of racial tolerance. But even when it came to recreation, Deerfield was unique. One early black settler, Squire Brockman, would host dances with his brother-in-law. Both black and white townsfolk came to enjoy the pair's fiddle and banjo. They danced on the same floor, which was extremely rare for the time. Deerfield's baseball team played against all of the white teams in the area. It was really kind of a model community in that sense, June remarks. The Role of Women Though Deerfield was a trailblazer in racial integration, women bore the brunt of the day-to-day work that created success for the entire community. Homesteading was a difficult and expensive proposition, and men often went off to work building railroads, working in the towns, and working in the cities, such as nearby Denver, to supplement their income, Brunswick says. That left the wives to stay behind, raise the kids, and basically keep the farms going. So there was a lot of responsibility and a lot of stress for women. They were tough people. Not uncommon for homesteads across the West, women would do everything from maintaining the households, cooking the meals, raising the children, and actually doing a lot of the hard physical work outside. They were really the bulwark of the homesteads and farmsteads of the day, Brunswick says. They maintained social ties with distant homesteads and enriched church life. Yet, while historical records and photographs of Deerfield do include women, they are not well represented. This was due to discrimination against black communities and because women in general were, in some ways, second to their husbands, Brunswick says. They were secondary because they didn't necessarily own the land themselves, and they didn't necessarily do all of the official legal documents. O.T. Jackson's second wife, Minerva Jade Jackson, established herself as a community matriarch. O.T., like many Deerfield men, was often away working in Denver. In his absence, Minerva was instrumental in maintaining and growing the community. June says, she was functionally in charge, you didn't go against her. Brunswick expands on this saying, she was kind of the backbone of the town of Deerfield and a lot of the farmsteads around Deerfield. She was a tough lady. Minerva's story reflects an unfortunate reality of many homesteading women in both Deerfield and beyond. As Brunswick says, women were responsible for an awful lot of the success, but at the same time, I don't think generally they were given enough of the credit. Revitalizing History When the Dust Bowl swept through the region in the 1930s, Deerfield was one of its many victims. The changing weather patterns made farming impossible for Deerfield residents. The town was abandoned, with some people relocating to Greeley and Denver. It was a huge mass exodus because the topsoil blew away," June says. The failure had nothing to do with black people, it was the weather. Nearly 100 years later, the town is regaining its mark in black American history. To Brunswick, preserving Deerfield is about honoring the legacy of people that have gone before us, that have made our nation what it is today. It is about addressing the histories that have taken place over the past century, two centuries, In understanding it, and it is about celebrating black people's importance in defining the future, not just the past. Send questions and comments to editorial at boulderweekly.com. So much loneliness so close to home. John Bassoff finds inspiration for dark novel Out on the Great Plains by Bart Shanman. When people think of Colorado, they typically imagine mountains. Red rocks, aspen forests, alpine lakes. But there's another Colorado, the one of small towns and open country far east of the Rockies. That's where author John Bassoff turned his attention for his new novel, Beneath Cruel Waters, a dark drama about family secrets, guilt, and tragedy. Bassoff, who lives in Longmont, opens the novel this way. Except for the lines of cottonwoods and willows nestled against the banks of the South Platte River, the landscape surrounding the town of Thompsonville, Colorado was mainly desolation and starkness. For grist in the landscape mill, Bassoff likes to get in his car and head east. In Colorado, it seems like you can just drive forever, he says. You're not seeing anything, but you're sort of seeing everything as well. Bassoff's fictionalized Thompsonville, a hybrid of an Eastern Plains town and Longmont, provides an appropriately bleak landscape for this twisted story. For me, with this kind of noir stuff that I write, I really love the idea of the open spaces, Bassoff says. And there's so much of that here, so much loneliness, and you can see how it can relate to the loneliness of families. Just that openness, the loneliness of the Eastern Plains, and the stark beauty of it as well. Bassoff's tale takes one brutal turn after another, murder, rape, violence, all of it told in spare, clear-eyed, unflinching prose. The story begins with the family matriarch, Vivian, killing a man in cold blood. The past reemerges when Vivian kills herself 34 years later at the very same location she committed the murder. Her son, Holt Davidson, comes home for the funeral and finds a gun, a polaroid of the dead man, and a love letter hidden underneath the floorboards of his childhood home. Davidson makes it his personal cause to figure out how it all went down. The narrative moves back and forth over more than thirty years, with Bassoff deftly depicting the pivotal moments as Holt uncovers a harrowing family melodrama. Bassoff says it's hard to explain why he's drawn to writing about dark material, but he knows why he sets these stories in what he calls haunted landscapes. There's the contrast of the freedom because of how much openness there is versus being trapped in your life in the small town that you find yourself in, he says. Bassoff has been writing for more than 20 years. This is his ninth novel. As he's aged and watched his children grow, he's more willing to allow his work to take a softer edge. In my previous novels, there was a lot more malice, he says. In this book, there are bad decisions and terrible things happening, but for maybe the right reasons. I don't think I'll ever write a feel-good novel or a great coming-of-age novel, but I think there has been a little shift where I'm at least able to give the characters the hope that they might have the possibility of redemption. Bassoff has taught English and creative writing for over a decade at Longmont High School, where his students hold him accountable for getting his writing done. Having my students look up to me and say, Hey, our teacher actually writes books as well. It makes me feel good, but it also gives me a little bit of the push to keep going, to keep walking the walk instead of just talking the talk. He had a former student come to one of his readings recently and hand him a book of self-published poetry. It was wonderful, Basov says. The students give back to me a little more than I give to them. He has a few other projects burning, including a book that was optioned for film more than a decade ago, and a screenplay he developed with Irish director Ivan Kavanaugh. There's all these things that may happen, but I've been waiting long enough to know, until they actually get the cameras and start filming, that you can't count on anything, he says. I'm just assuming it won't happen. If it does, I'll be really happy. John Bassoff's top five favorite books. One, The Killer Inside Me by Jim Thompson, a novel written in the repressive 1950s and told from the point of view of a sociopath. It is terrifyingly funny. Two, The Butcher Boy by Patrick McCabe. Never has a terribly sad book been so much fun to read. The unreliable narration combines a blend of dirty realism and violent fantasy, and the farther along you get in the novel, the more difficult it is to tell them apart. 3. Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor O'Connor's writing is filled with religious extremism, grotesqueness, and mental illness. All the things that make America great. If I could have written a single book, this would have been it. 4. The Unconsoled by Kazuo Ishiguro. I've always been fascinated by surrealism and expressionism, and the unconsoled takes a multitude of dreamlike images and expresses them in a fascinating and disorienting story. 5. The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat by Oliver Sacks. Sacks was a brilliant neurologist. These case studies are heartbreaking and fascinating and show us the power of the brain and the danger of assuming an absolute truth. On the Range in the Gig Economy: A Portrait of Two Freelance Range Riders in Bitterbrush by Michael J. Casey. Holland Patterson was born ready and as she jokes, premature. But that's neither here nor there. Not yet at least. Today, she's rustling some beef across the Idaho hinterlands and with Collie Moline at her side and a dozen dogs at their command, those cows are going where they need to get. Directed by Emily Madavian, Bitterbrush follows Patterson and Moline through three seasons of lonesome work herding cattle through endless sagebrush. Patterson and Moline are freelance range riders moving livestock from one grazing spot to the next for whoever has work. Neither has land of their own, but this is what they are good at, and this is what they love doing. One of the pleasures of Bitterbrush is the rapport Patterson and Maline have with each other, something Modavian focuses on, but does not overly emphasize. Most of Bitterbrush is understated. Everything here is unhurried and confident. Whether riding through a blizzard, breaking a young filly, or dealing with a surprise pregnancy, Patterson and Moline never look unsure of their abilities. Nor do they appear uncomfortable on screen. Occasionally, one will talk to the camera to explain something. But this probably has more to do with how Patterson and Moline view their relationship with the film crew than Medavian peppering them with questions off screen. Honestly, it works in the movie's favor that Patterson and Moline acknowledge they're being photographed. It makes Bitterbrush feel more authentic. Take Patterson's long ride through the blizzard. The horse trudges headfirst into the wind, and the dog races ahead to the cows and then back to Patterson. Patterson dips her head low so that her hat bears the brunt of the wind. It's a stunning shot, and the longer it goes on, the more you become aware that, in this same blizzard in the middle of nowhere, is another person riding on horseback about 50 feet from Patterson, capturing it all with a movie camera. His name is Derek Howard and his cinematography gives Bitterbrush realism. The music you hear, Bach keyboard pieces, is performed by piano duo Anderson and Rowe. Their performance gives Bitterbrush its lyricism. This isn't your average day in the life documentary. That's because Patterson and Moline are not your average range riders. Watching Patterson work with a horse named Marilyn is a lesson in patience and firmness. Listening to Moline talk about the financial realities of farming and ranching in the 21st century is an exercise in accepting frustrating realities. Even Moline discussing her relationship to God drives at something more than just belief. It's a lesson in practical spirituality. None of this Madavian, hammers home or underlines with bold markers. It's so quiet at times you may even wonder what it all adds up to. Quite a bit once you start mulling it over. For Madavian, Bitterbrush was a chance to make a movie about the community she lived in and the people she encountered. She succeeded. And not just by giving a portrait of two fascinating subjects, but by depicting a reality next door to ours that couldn't feel more distant. For more movie reviews, tune in to After Image Fridays at 3pm on KGNU 88.5 FM and online at KGNU.org. Send questions or comments to editorial at BoulderWeekly.com A Taste of Time The rustic Gold Hill Inn Restaurant has rung the dinner bell for 60 years by John Lendorf. The Gold Hill Inn opened in 1962. That year was so long ago that all the memories in it are black and white. The Rustic Eatery began serving 60 years ago when John Kennedy was president and John Glenn was an astronaut. It was the time before the invention of the internet, CDs, cell phones, and personal computers. Few Americans had color TVs to watch the Beverly Hillbillies, the number one show. That was the year that an adventurous young couple, Barbara and Frank Finn, visited a closed-up, run-down building in a barely-there mountain town at the top of a long, steep, rutted and winding dirt road. They had hopes of transforming the log building into an eatery that would entice guests into making the trek to 8,300 foot Gold Hill for dinner. The family had four children, including their very young son, Brian. They were a little crazy, recalls Brian Finn. There were maybe five families living in the town of Gold Hill. Dad was a postman, so they didn't have any money but they borrowed $12,000 to buy the place. Today, Brian runs the Gold Hill Inn with his brother, Chris, who is in charge of the kitchen. From the beginning, Gold Hill dining was different. They decided they were going to do the table d'hôte, table of the house, the full six-course meal in the middle of nowhere. Mom would take popular recipes, like from Julia Child, and mold them into her own style, Brian says. The full dinner in the dining room still includes appetizers, house baked whole grain bread, butter and jam, hot and cold soups, and a choice of salads. Chris Finn usually lists four to six entrees on the chalkboard menu at the entrance to the dining room. The most popular dishes in 2022 have been popular for decades broiled stuffed cold-smoked rainbow trout and bacon-wrapped beef, tornadoes with hunter sauce, and roast lamb with rosemary sauce. The old-fashioned desserts range from sour cream apple pie and frozen chocolate mint cups, to red moss mountain, frozen strawberry cream, and sherry-soaked bundt cake. The finale is always a tray of cheeses, fruits, and Melba toast. When it first opened, the scientists at the National Bureau of Standards in Boulder discovered the place and loved it, Brian says. When some of them went to Antarctica, they built an igloo for instruments with a sign out front that said, Gold Hill Inn. An Associated Press photographer shot a photo of the sign that appeared in the publications nationally. The Gold Hill Inn has survived the decades, in part because it wasn't open year-round. My parents would shut down the inn for the winter. Pack us in an old school bus and take us down to Mexico, where we camped on the beach, Brian adds. Brian continues the tradition by going to the family's fishing cottage in Key West, Florida, every winter. Every May, the Gold Hill Inn reopens, having survived fires, floods, and recessions. The pandemic was the biggest challenge in our history, Brian says. One day, we were looking at our huge side yard we only used for concerts on three holiday weekends a year. We decided to try putting out some tables, serving food and drinks, and having live music. It was a huge success immediately, and it saved us. It was the first time in its 60-year history that the restaurant served an a la carte menu. The Inn continues to serve that menu in its barroom and beer garden. It's a blast. Now it's my favorite thing we do, Brian says. When we come out into the yard with our usual big heavy plate loaded with three vegetables, a starch, and an entree, people are like, Whoa, that's a real dinner. It wasn't just a cheeseburger, he says. The mountain cabin experience diners encountered in the 1960s remains much the same now. On a recent Saturday night at the Gold Hill Inn, the place was packed. The worn, slightly warped wooden floor is the same as it ever was, along with the huge fireplaces, historic artifacts on the walls, and pole-chain tanks on the toilets in the restrooms. People still belly up to the big old bar to order the Kirby Bump, a historical cocktail made with rum, bitters, fresh orange juice, and house-made fresh ginger beer. The Gold Hill Inn has long been a beloved concert venue that has hosted the likes of John Hartford, the Dillards, and Guy Clark. On this particular June evening, folks find seats in the yard for a dinner concert featuring old favorites, Drew Emmett and Andy Thorne of Leftover Salmon. As twilight shadows the foothills, you could hear the clink of glasses and the sound of everyone in the yard singing along. Barbara and Frank Finn would be pleased how their wild idea has taken root 60 years on. Local food news. A social media message posted in the past week by the Niwot Tavern. Please, for the love of God, stop going to restaurants if you are not feeling well. We are all trying to continue to do business. We are all short-staffed to begin with, and then, when you bring your sickness to us, we have to then close because we don't have healthy staff. Please be respectful of others' health. Words to Chuan. And windin' up was cake or pie with coffee demi Or sometimes floatin' island in a soothin' kind of sass, That left a sort of pleasant ticklin' in a feller's throat, And made him a hanker after more of Casey's table d'hote. Casey's table d'hote, Eugene Fields' 1800s poem About a meal he ate in Gold Hill. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles, Thursdays on KGNU, Listen to podcasts at news.kgnu.org. Email questions or comments to nibbles at boulderweekly.com. The Bitter Truth An Aromatic Dash of Cocktail Balance by Matt Mainpoth. A dash here, a drop there, all in the name of flavor. Bitters are a common cocktail ingredient, but what's the actual point of all these different varieties? All good cocktails have a balance, says Wes Isbutt, owner of Longmont's West Side Tavern. The Amaros, the Cordials, these varieties of flavors we use in cocktails. We balance them with citrus and we balance them with bitters. Take a classic cocktail like an old-fashioned. Bitters bring out the depth in something that might otherwise veer toward overly sweet. Old-fashions typically call for a classic aromatic bitter, like angostura, bringing out some of the layers of cherry and citrus to lift them through the potency of bourbon. Bitters are critical to a cocktail, Isbud explains. It's critical in the balance, but it's also critical in making an interesting cocktail versus a boring one. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get to the bitter truth, or rather, the truth about bitters. Akin to an herbal tincture, bitters are made by soaking botanicals in high proof alcohol for an extended period of time, often combined with fruit and some sort of sweetener to bind it all together. Flavors range from rhubarb and cherry to grapefruit, walnut, and coffee, typically married with a list of herbs not out of place in an apothecary. Bitters must be, well, bitter, so some sort of agent needs to be added commonly gentian root or various barks. The whole process takes a few weeks, perhaps longer if the alcohol is a lower proof, but the end result can be marvelous if you have the recipe dialed in. The tincture as a medicinal supplement has roots dating as far back as the 1700s, according to Brad Thomas Parsons' bitters. Often touted as a cure-all, bitters may as well have been snake oil, the U.S. Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which, among other things, required bitters producers to clearly label ingredients. This immediately affected the snake oil style patent medicine bitters, which were effectively shunned from the marketplace, and thus opened up the playing field for more reputable brands such as Abbott's, Boker's, and Angostura, which had been adopted behind the bar, Parsons writes in his book. There is some merit to bitters' mild restorative properties. This writer swears by club soda and a few heavy dashes of bitters to settle indigestion, but I wouldn't necessarily go further than that. Few bartenders worth their jiggers and bar spoons could run a cocktail program without at least several varieties of bitters. Circling back to the old-fashioned, a shift in bitters can alter the whole profile of a cocktail, but opts to add equal parts walnut and chocolate bitters, rather than a traditional aromatic like angostura. The result is something smoother, highlighting the oaks and caramel of the whiskey over the citrus nose. For a fascinating variety of bitters, one has to look no further than Boulder's Cocktail Punk. Run by Josh Laguna, Cocktail Punk's variety of small-batch bitters run the gamut of flavors. Laguna's eagerness to delve into the world of bitters is palpable as he waxes over the intricacies and complexities. Cocktail Punk makes its own version of the classics, aromatic, orange, and grapefruit. But the varieties Laguna gets truly excited for are a touch off-kilter. They're like the spice cabinet of the cocktail world, Laguna says. It's what you add to give a cocktail a special twist just the bitter flavor aspect like sweetness or umami. It's one of the main tasting profiles. The American single malt bitters are barrel-aged designed specifically for whiskey cocktails, while the alpino cocktail bitters use sage and mint to mimic the profiles of a mountain amaro. Laguna makes homage to Colorado with local cherries, peaches, and lavender in other varietals. With a dozen individual bitters, Cocktail Punk aims to make bitters that suit classic cocktails, while serving bartenders looking to flex their creative skills. Laguna isn't one to rest, though, with several flavors in the pipeline, including a ginger bitter that sounds promising as a replacement for Angostura in a classic rye cocktail like the View Car. Classic bitters like Angostura and Peychauds will always have a place behind a bar. But creative bartenders require a broader spice cabinet. Bitters makers like Laguna will keep coming up with apothecarial wonders and bartenders like Isbut will find new and strange ways to implement them in their libations. Email the author at mattmainpot at gmail Thailand's Green Gold Rush Thailand Beats U.S. to End Prohibition of Cannabis, Decriminalize Sale and Cultivation, and Expunge Cannabis Convictions by Will Brenza It was hot and humid like most June afternoons in Buriram, Thailand. A crowd of over a hundred had gathered in the northern province for a small fair and exhibition presided over by the nation's health minister Anutin Charnvirakul who is handing out seedling cannabis plants with a big smile. Charn Virakul, who has largely spearheaded the Thai government's decriminalization movement, gave out 100 free cannabis plants to Thai citizens that day. And the government plans on giving out one million more over the next six months. At the beginning of 2022, Thailand announced that it would be decriminalizing cannabis this year, clearing a pathway for home cultivation and entrepreneurship. It is an opportunity for people and the state to earn income from marijuana and hemp, Charn Virakul wrote in a social media post. Anyone can sell it if they obey the law. While recreational sales have yet to be officially legalized, this broad-scale decriminalization is the first step in a new era for the Land of Smiles. An era that will see Thailand's opportunity and tourism revenue skyrocket and an era that represents a second chance for thousands of people currently serving term in Thailand's jails. Cannabis isn't new to Thai people or culture. It's been part of their traditional medicine and cooking for centuries, and was only made illegal in 1935. Since then, though, the Thai government has remained fairly strict about it. If a person was caught smoking cannabis in public, they'd be handed a three-month jail sentence and a 700 USD fine. However, in 2018, the nation legalized medicinal cannabis, and the levy of prohibition started to show some cracks. This is a New Year's gift from the National Legislative Assembly to the government and the Thai people, Somchai Chai Sawangarn, chairman of the drafting committee, said at the 2018 announcement of Thailand's medicinal cannabis policy. Then in January, the Thai government's narcotics board officially announced that the plant was coming off the prohibited drugs list sometime in 2022. People would be allowed to cultivate it at home. And just six months later, they followed through, becoming the first Asian country to decriminalize cannabis, beating the US across that finish line as well. Under Thailand's law, Thai citizens can grow up to six plants per household which can be sold to hospitals, research facilities, or used in food or cosmetics. To produce more than that, a cultivation permit from the government will be required, and any cannabis businesses have to be licensed by the state." Charnvirakul told the Bangkok Post that over 700,000 applications for cannabis permits and licenses have already been submitted. That exceeds the target, he said. And it indicates how eager the Thai people are to start tapping into this new revenue stream. To date, 10 years into recreational legalization, cannabis has made almost 13 billion dollars in Colorado alone. Just last year, the state raked in 423 million dollars in tax and fee revenue. And every year, recreational legalization attracts millions of visitors from other states. Thailand could soon see similar explosions of wealth and tourism traffic as it capitalizes on what many have called a green gold rush. Jonathan Calkins is an American drug policy researcher who has produced several cannabis reports for the Rand Corporation, looking at how legalization affects state economies and social welfare. He likens the revenue legal states make off of cannabis tourism to that of casinos in the 80s. Nevada had casinos then, and it was only Nevada, he says, and in those years, you had tourists from other states coming in and spending their money there. He also points out that when a legal state borders a densely populated prohibition state, it generates significantly more revenue, as people cross state lines to make their purchases. That applies to countries, too. Thailand could draw tourists from prohibition nations, as a place to get away from their own country's rules to indulge, Calkins says. Australians, New Zealanders, South Africans, and Chinese all travel to Thailand in droves throughout the year, and all come from countries with standing cannabis prohibitions. While the revenue possibilities will soon make a huge difference in Thailand, the expungement aspect of this policy will immediately benefit people suffering in the country. With this announcement, some 4,000 prisoners currently serving jail time for cannabis offenses will not only be released, but their records will be wiped clean. It's a progressive step for a country that only recently started breaking down cannabis prohibition, and one that the U.S. could surely learn from. According to the ACLU, 40,000 Americans are currently behind bars for cannabis crimes, even though it's been fully legalized in 19 states. Thailand has yet to set forth a comprehensive law for regulating recreational cannabis, now that it's been decriminalized. But business owners are already taking steps to position themselves for when their parliament does. One business owner who has already started selling cannabis flowers at her shop, alongside her terpene-infused gummies, told ABC News she knows tighter regulations are coming. But for now, cannabis has become as free as garlic and as chili. Contact the author at wbrenza at boulderweekly.com. Taste of the Week, A Manly Breakfast Pie, by John Lendorf. For a short and stupid time in 1982 and afterwards, some American men stopped eating egg pie. A best-selling book was published that year entitled Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. It was a silly guide to masculine living in a world, thankfully becoming progressively less macho. Manly men in France and the US laughed at the silliness and kept eating well-made quiche. I've always loved and made quiche because, well, it's pie for breakfast. Julian Gino knows real quiche. At Lafayette's Geno's Patisserie and Bistro, the French-born pastry chef melds nutmeg-accented creamy eggs and aged Gruyere cheese plus lots of ham into a buttery, flaky crust. Really, what's not to like? Jeannot's classic quiche Lorraine is rich and creamy, not rubbery, and baked long enough to caramelize the cheesy top. I enjoyed a slice with a side of raspberry preserves plus a fresh fruit and berry salad, and a cup of dark-roasted coffee. The bistro's breakfast-slash-lunch menu also features salad lyonnaise topped with bacon and poached egg, croque monsieur, and a salmon English muffin with cream cheese, caper, pickle, and egg. The cases are full of traditional French classics, including croissants, pain aux raisins, pain au chocolat, financières, tarts, eclairs, and cakes. What I like here is the attention to detail all around. Jeannot's is not cheap quiche, but it's well worth savoring. Another road food attraction, donut attraction. For decades, visitors knew they were nearing the Rocky Mountain National Park entrance when they rounded a corner in Estes Park and saw the Donut House sign. Donut lovers have a new reason to smack their lips at high altitude since the Daily Donut opened recently near the original Donut House location. With windows where you can view the donut frying, glazing, and topping process, Daily Donut is far more entertaining than another Estes Park culinary attraction I visited. Beef jerky experience is just a whole lot of jerky hanging out. The Daily Donut was opened by the same folks who operate the Uni Pie Bakery and Cafe. Donut flavors include coconut, chocolate dipped strawberry, peanut butter cake, and baby Bostons filled with Bavarian cream and coated in chocolate glaze. My favorite variety is the yeast raised donut with thick maple glaze and a crown of smoky bacon pieces. The shop's menu also features baked and fried cinnamon rolls, sticky buns, and on the savory side, Texas collages and breakfast burritos. Culinary calendar, take this class. Please take this class or a similar knife skills class. It is the single best thing you can do to make food prep easier, faster, safer, and more fun for the rest of your cooking life. The knife skills class, June 18th, at Longmont's Journey Culinary Ltd. shows you how to choose a knife, sharpen it, hold it safely, and chop, dice, slice, and mince. journeyculinary.com Slow Food Boulder Country celebrates summer in the field with tours, burgers, wine, beer, s'mores, and a campfire, June 25th at Longmont's Community Table Farm, slowfoodboulder.org. The Denver Greek Festival, June 17th to 19th, features an array of Greek foods, thegreekfestival.com. Botanica, a festival of plants, is June 18th to 19th at Lafayette's Three Leaf Farm with workshops about wild foods and a farm dinner, botanicafestival.com. Send information about Boulder County and Colorado food and drink events, classes, festivals, farm dinners, farm stands, and tastings to nibbles at boulderweekly.com. Good for a Laugh, Boulder Comedy Festival puts a spotlight on diverse voices by Matt Mainpot. Mark Twain once wrote, Laughter without a tinge of philosophy is but a sneeze of humor. Genuine humor is replete with wisdom. Boulder comedian BK Sherrod's philosophy is that everyone is fair game. I like making fun of everybody and everything because I think everybody in the world wants to feel like there is one right way of living and it's their way, Sherrod says. But I think everybody equally messes up and means well. I like pointing that out and making fun of it. Sherrod doesn't want to be mean about it, he says. The jokes aren't meant to punch down, and he certainly doesn't spare himself during his shows. Even after a rough set, Sherrod looks for the humor and laughs it off. I have a joke that came from when I was driving home after a bad set, where I was thinking about driving off the road, but my car's lane assist is too good, Sherrod says wryly. Jokes about his mental health aside, Sherrod says using comedy as a platform to discuss mental health is important to him. Sherrod is frank about his struggles with depression and anxiety, especially after the isolation of COVID lockdowns. I try my best, he explains. Sometimes people get weird about it because it's an uncomfortable conversation to have. But it's important to have that conversation so people know they aren't suffering alone. It's probably why Zoe Rogers put him on the lineup for this year's Boulder Comedy Festival, June 23rd to 26th, a diverse roster of comics from Boulder, Denver, and beyond, performing at venues around the county. I don't like mean comedy, Rogers says, the punching down stuff where you don't want to laugh because you feel bad. I like the very vulnerable, personal, and self deprecating comedy where we're laughing with the comic. Roger says that the Boulder's audience responds well to that style of comedy, meshing well with the lineup she wants to make space for. Bringing comedians to the stage who offer differing perspectives broadens the appeal, she explains, giving the audience more to connect with. Roger's comedy, hilarious recountings of the trials of motherhood and marriage, came from her own need to connect with people over the constant disasters of parenting. Rogers recalls an anecdote working with another comedy writer who happened to be a single guy. The writer jokingly said that using her kids for material was cheating because they practically write the jokes for her. Do you want to trade? Rogers says with a laugh. I'll sleep in, shower, and form full sentences. You can occasionally get a funny tidbit about how broken you feel. Starting in the Los Angeles comedy scene before moving to Colorado, Rogers made it a goal to find more diverse comics after her experiences sharing the stage with more cis white men than women or people of color. If it was a really diverse show back then, it was eight straight white guys, me and maybe a black comic, she says. The irony wasn't lost on Rogers when she was told that having two women on the same set might seem redundant. Two women with wildly different life experiences and comic tendencies couldn't possibly be more redundant than eight straight white guys, so she started booking her own shows. Diverse lineups and all-women comedy sets would help Rogers create reference sheets for other comedy bookers, she explains. Setting up shows would turn in to help those diverse comics get booked in more shows. I tried to consciously do it, where I'd look at my lineups and say, oh, this is heavily male, or this is looking pretty white, or I don't have any gay comics. Because that's what pops in my head, Rogers says. Because that's what pops up when I look at other people's shows. How many different perspectives am I getting? Is this going to be a rerun? So, I do consciously make things diverse, because representation does matter. All of which would lead to Rogers and her friends launching the Boulder Comedy Festival, returning for its second run this year after COVID halted the original launch in 2020. Across four nights and a half dozen venues throughout the county, 30 comics, including Sherrod, Rogers, and Gabby Gutierrez-Reed, will take the stage to break some funny bones. Denver-based Gutierrez-Reed leans on the kind of self-deprecating humor that at her own mental health, family, and ethnicity as a Mexican-Norwegian woman, along with her job as an educator. Gutierrez-Reed started studying improv about a decade ago, she says, before making the switch to stand-up. Gutierrez-Reed says she was enamored by the joy of stand-up, particularly the addition of making other people laugh and how people relate to her sets. Acknowledging that she's been lucky enough to get booked consistently over the past few years, even through a pandemic, her hard work has paid off. The support she's received from other comics has been a boon through all of it. As a Latina woman, I would say there are all kinds of different experiences, she says. I'm really happy that our scene has evolved into being very supportive. Women and non-binary comedians are very supportive, and there's an amazing queer scene. Passive-aggressive comments still happen, but Gutierrez-Reed says she tries not to dwell on them too much. Instead, she focuses on the better parts, laughing with her friends, hearing new sets, and producing women-run shows like Firecracker Comedy. Producing has helped her think about the flow of comedy shows and, like Rogers, building out diverse lineups. Throughout the pandemic, when live shows were impossible, both Gutierrez-Reed and Sherrod took to performances through Zoom. Echoing each other, both comics lamented the difficulty of being distanced from an audience. Gutierrez Reed says the best shows were when the virtual audience had their mics on and you could hear the laughter. The worst ones were when everybody was muted. It was just like you were in a blank void and just performing stand-up in a mirror, she says. Fortunately for comics and comedy lovers alike, in-person events returned as vaccines rolled out. Rogers said last year's Boulder Comedy Festival got a tremendous response in both turnout and laughs for the comics. People were really happy to be out. The first night when I said, thank you for coming out, the whole audience was like, thank you for doing this. So that was great, Rogers says. For this year's festival, shows are spread throughout Louisville, Lafayette, and Boulder. Highlights include a fundraiser for Out Boulder County at Tilt Pinball in Louisville on June 23rd, as well as a Boozy Brunch on June 24th at the Tiki Hut in Louisville. Folks interested in the working side of comedy can also register for a stand-up comedy class Sunday morning before the brunch, hosted by Rogers and comedian Heather Pasternak. Whether or not the audience finds wisdom in the humor of the comics, one can all but guarantee a sneeze of a laugh at this year's festival. Email questions or comments to editorial at boulderweekly.com. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly, and my name is Orion Rooney. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.